He is risen. Man, y'all are getting good at that. You got some good practice at it this morning so far. It's good. Make sure that when you leave this place today, you take that same message on your lips and that you share it as you leave here because you will be carrying the good news of the gospel message to those who are around you. So make sure you continue to greet those in the name of the Lord today and tell them he is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm glad to be with you this morning on this uh, it's Easter Sunday morning, and it is so good to be able to celebrate with you and to be able to worship with you today. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians and to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. On this Easter Sunday morning, I want us to consider together the gospel, and, and, and which literally means the good news, and I want us to consider the good news of the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And and here's the questions that I want us to keep in the back of our minds as we think about this this morning. I want us to consider why is the resurrection and the death and the resurrection of Jesus such good news for us? Why is it so important for us? You know, as this, I was thinking about uh, Easter services this morning and, and I was thinking about uh, back to when I was a child uh, to Easter services that I experience with my family growing up, and I thought about some of the sunrise services that I went to and uh, some of the Easter days that we had at some of the churches where my dad pastored, and it reminded me actually of, of another event that was repeated often over and over again uh, as I was growing up. During the 80s, my dad pastored a church just north of here in Gainesville. Uh, the name of the church was Newbridge Baptist Church, and we lived, my family lived, well, not just during that time, but for many years after that, lived on a road that was just across Cleveland Highway, US 129, named Scenic Drive. And we lived less than a quarter of a mile from the church. And so on days like today, when it was really nice outside, it was very common for us to get up and just walk to church. We would walk down Scenic Drive. We would cross over Cleveland Highway, and then we would walk down into what was the cemetery of the church, and there was a paved pathway that would take us directly to the church where my dad pastored. And so many, 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 many mornings that I would get up with my dad, and I would walk to church with him. We'd walk down that street across the highway, and we'd walk to the church through that path that led through the cemetery. Here's the interesting thing about that walk, though. As we made our way onto that pathway that took us through that cemetery directly to the church where my dad pastored, just off the path, like from here to that speaker, were the graves of Clarence and Amanda Dale. They were my dad's mom and dad. And so every Sunday that we would make our way to church, my dad would walk right past the graves of his mom and dad, carrying his Bible in his hand, having a message of the Lord in his heart of the good news of the gospel. He walked right past those two graves and headed toward that church where he would stand and he would deliver the good news of the gospel. Now, I will admit to you that when I was young, when I was uh, a teenager, a young teenager, the gravity of that really didn't settle on me. I don't think I truly understood the weight of, of what that meant for him. The fact that, that he, would, he would make that trek Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, and get into that pulpit 
and deliver the good news of the gospel. The good news that we studied together, if you recall, if you were with us last week, that Jesus Christ declares in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He would get there in that pulpit and he would preach that gospel. And I want you to know, it was many, many years later that the weight of what that meant for my dad kind of rested on me. He must have felt that every single time, but I understand that weight now. In fact, I sense that weight this morning. I feel the responsibility of the task that is in front of me today. You see, the reality is is that every day, every single one of us in this room is reminded of the certainty of death. We may not walk past our parents' graves every single day. But every single day, we are reminded that death reigns in this world. I just had a conversation earlier this morning with one of our firefighters here in Gwinnett County who told me that last night there was a fire in Snellville that hit a family hard, and it took the lives of two very young children of that family. We are reminded of death all the time. We turn on the TV, we see all of the atrocities and everything that's taking place and the death that is occurring in the Ukraine. We know that just as I had yesterday, I had a memorial service for a saint of God who had died, who was a member of this church. I stand before a congregation and and preach funerals. We're reminded of death. I was reminded of it today as I watched tears flow down the cheeks of a child spouse. This is their first Easter without their loved one. Maybe it's their fifth. Could be their 25th. The reality is we are reminded of death all around us all the time. The inevitability of death surrounds us, but I have good news for you on this Easter Sunday morning. I have come to bring you the best news that I could ever announce to anyone, and it is that something happened 2,000 years ago that because of what occurred, you have no reason to fear death. In fact, because of this earth-shattering, life-changing good news, this miracle that happened, death has been defanged, and the poison of its venom has been neutralized. Obviously, the event to which I am referring this morning is, is the death and the bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the reason that that is such good news is because Christ is risen. We now have hope that death will not have the last word over us. And as I mentioned earlier, I want to read from you, for you from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in which there is an extended discussion of the resurrection of Christ and all of its benefits. And I'm, I'm not going to read the entire chapter to you, but I am going to read a significant portion to you because it is my conviction And it is our conviction here at Ivy Creek that the Word of God is powerful and that it changes lives. And just the sheer reading of the Word of God, there is power in it. And so I want us to do that today. I want us to honor the Lord and I want us to honor His Word by reading it together. So begin reading with me there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, where we hear the Apostle Paul write these words. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, 
unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as, one, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not risen. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That is rich, wonderful, good news. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you that on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning that you have given us, this day in which we come and gather as the people of God together to celebrate the resurrection, I pray, God, that you would just empower us by your Holy Spirit to understand your word, to appreciate it, and to apply it to our lives. We might be changed, radically so by the power of the good news of the gospel. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Now, I want you to know I love how Paul begins this chapter because Paul begins by by really giving us a summarized, very succinct explanation of the gospel. And let me just say, the gospel equates to the good news. It's a synonymous, those, those terms are synonymous, good news and, and, and the gospel. And the good news is that, is that It has come to countermand the bad news. And the bad news is what we've already discussed. That death is everywhere we look. We're reminded of it. Every place we turn, death is there and it's right in front of us. And so the good news of the gospel has come to announce the the end of the bad news. And the summary of that good news, the summary of that gospel, you'll find right there in verses 3 and 4. And I would even suggest these are wonderful verses for you to commit to memory. Paul says 
says that the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, what I want to point out to you right up front is that the good news of the gospel that Paul announces here very succinctly and in a summarized form, it does not begin with Sunday and the resurrection. Do you notice that? It actually begins with Good Friday and begins with the crucifixion. It begins by Paul saying that Christ died for your sins. And that is very important, and it leads me to the first point that I want you to note on your outline this morning. Because I want you to understand that the good news of the gospel begins with Christ's vicarious death. Christ's vicarious death. That word vicarious literally means in place of. It means on behalf of. And what it does is it draws our attention to the, to, the, to the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. As Paul says there in verse 3, Christ died, notice it, for our sins. And what that means is that Jesus died in the place of sinners. He sacrificed his perfect life on our behalf so that we might be set free from the penalty of our sins. That theme is something that, that Paul says is, is throughout the Scriptures. In fact, he says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It is something that is testified to throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. I can't chase all of it out for you, but let me just explain one of those places that you'll find it even testified to in the Old Testament. Christ's vicarious death is testified to in the writings of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, you, write, you read these words beginning in verse 5. He says, but he was wounded, listen, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Then Isaiah goes on to say, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, there are many other places, but no more clearly is, is there as to what occurred and why it occurred. You could also turn to Psalm 22, which would be the Psalm of the cross, which is as if David had to travel a thousand years in advance and observed exactly what occurred at Calvary and goes back and writes it down and makes it a psalm. Those are wonderful places that point us to the, the vicarious nature of Christ's death. But I want you to know Christ's vicarious death is also a repeated theme throughout the New Testament as well. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he made him, that is God made Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the, the substitutionary nature of Christ's sacrifice. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then the writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And then Peter declares in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, 
that he might bring us to God. My point is simply this, that the good news of the gospel begins with Christ's vicarious death. Jesus Christ came to live a perfect, sinless, holy life, and then he gave that life. He willingly laid his life down in the place of sinners like you and me on our behalf as our substitute. And the reason that is such good news is because apart from it, you and I would have no hope. You see, our situation is so, is so dastardly. Our situation is, is so hopeless. Because as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, through one man, that is Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. What that means is that you and I could never compensate for our sins. We could never pay the price. Jesus alone could do that. And that is why his sacrifice was necessary. Without it, there would be no hope because death would continue to reign forever. So the good news begins with the announcing of Christ's death that it was vicarious, it was substitutionary in its nature. He died for our sins. But then we note that that's only the first half. That's really the first half of the good news of the gospel. The second half is what Paul goes on to say in verse 4. He says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then in verse 4, he says that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then after that, he gives this long list of those who actually witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. That leads me to the second thing that I want you to see. The second point, the second part of the gospel is this, is that we recognize Christ's verifiable resurrection. His verifiable resurrection. It is so important to recognize that Paul lists all of these eyewitnesses who could verify and validate the resurrection was true. You notice he talks about Cephas. That's, many believe that, that that is exactly who he's talking about is Paul. He says Paul was able, Cephas was able to, to, to see Jesus once he rose from the dead. Not just him, but the other apostles as well. And he says there were over 500 people who were able to actually see Jesus and encounter him. Many of them, he says, are even still alive today, though some have passed away, some sleep, he says. But most of them are still there. You can still go interview them when he writes what he does. He says not only that, but James, Jesus' own brother, who would have known his brother, He also saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And then Paul says, and I almost even hate to bring it up, Paul says, but I too have encountered the resurrected Christ. So so here's my point. Why does Paul feel the necessity to give us this list of all of these people who who had seen Jesus upon his resurrection from the dead? Well, this is what I would say. You know, it's not really necessary for us to produce fact most of the time. That someone has died? In fact, none of you doubt probably for one second that when I told you about the graves of my grandparents right there next to that pathway, none of you really doubt the fact that they're there. You want to know why? Because death is obvious. Death happens all the time. We don't typically have to tell someone or prove to someone that a loved one or someone has died. But now you tell someone that someone is raised from the dead? Someone is resurrected from the tomb? Wait a minute. I need proof about that. 
Paul recognized that when he was going to tell the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, there were going to be some who read his writing and said, wait a minute, time out, that can't be true. Death happens, yes, but resurrection, no way. Paul says, yes way. Jesus has all of these people who can testify, who can verify that he raised bodily from the dead. And here's what I would say about this group that he mentions. None of them, none of them were expecting Christ to rise from the dead. You realize that none of the ones that he mentioned were camped outside that tomb waiting for that stone to roll away and for Jesus to come walking out. No, instead, what we read in the Gospels is that they were huddled together in fear. They were scared to death for their life. They saw what happened to Jesus, and now they were expecting the same thing to happen to them, especially Jesus' own 12 disciples. And so they're fearful, they're timid, they're, they're, they're depleted, they're even depressed. But then you notice what happens. Upon them actually encountering the Lord, having resurrected from the dead, it changed everything about them. Suddenly they became men who were willing to charge hell with a water pistol. They were willing to go out into the world and tell everybody, Jesus Christ died for your sins, but he rose again on the third day, and I'm a witness to it. And no longer were they timid and scared and and afraid. It changed their lives. Can I say to you that changed lives give verifiable evidence that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? Think about what the Apostle Paul says. Look, I was one who persecuted the church. That was what I did. I, I attacked the church. It could even, a, a case could even be made that he was a murderer. We certainly know that he stood by while Stephen was martyred. And yet Paul says, I encountered him on the road to Damascus, one who was born out of due time. And he changed my life, and I'm no longer like who I once was. And the resurrection is validated in me. May I also say this to you, that that has been true and proven again and again, and again, throughout the centuries, and throughout all cultures, and throughout all people, that when they encounter the truth of a Christ who died for them, and was buried, but then rose again from the tomb, that it changed their lives. And that verifies the truth of the fact that Christ died and rose again. Notice, notice though, that Paul drills even deeper into the necessity of Christ's resurrection. In fact, he makes it clear that if Jesus only died, even if he died for you, but he did not rise from the dead, then then nothing was gained. His death was useless. Notice what Paul says there in verse 14. He says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. In other words, in other words, Paul says that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then the the gospel message that I have proclaimed to you has no power whatsoever. It's not really good news because it's all words and it has no substance. He continues in verse 17. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then he all goes on to write, then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, if Christ is not raised, then any hope that you and I may have for forgiveness of sins and a home in heaven is useless. What that means is that the foundational message of the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins vicariously and that he rose again 
on the third day, and it's verifiable by the witnesses that the Scriptures provide. And so we might even say this, how do we know? How do we know that Christ's sacrifice for the atonement of our sin was successful? We know it because God validated it by raising Jesus from the dead. If God had not accepted Christ's sacrifice, then he would not have raised his son from the dead. But because he did, we can be certain that Jesus secured the pardon for those who will place their faith in him. So the good news of the gospel message is simple. It is, it is the first half is Christ's vicarious death. And the second half is his verifiable resurrection. And that's what leads us to the third point. The third thing, this is where it becomes personal to us, because the third thing I want you to see this morning is that the gospel leads us to our victorious hope. Our victorious hope. Let me point you once again to verse 19, because in it, Paul paints a picture of what it's like to not have hope. I mean, you've got to start with the bad news if you're really going to appreciate the good news, right? So he starts with the bad news, and he just says this. Look, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we're delusional. We're nothing more than sheep and cattle being fattened for the slaughter. We've bought into a lie. We've deceived ourselves. And and we're deceiving not just ourselves, we're deceiving others by the message that we preach if Jesus did not rise from the dead. We're pathetic creatures living pathetic lives, worshiping a false image of God, and we are ultimately accomplishing nothing for which we would hope. And that's just an utterly dismal and depressing thought, just to be completely honest. What that means is that apart from Christ's resurrection, there is no hope and there's no reason to hope. And Paul writes that in verse 19, and I say it here, and it's just one of those things that I can't leave it there. Man, that's horrible. That's that's terrible news, which is why I think when he gets to verse 20, he says, but now Christ is risen. He's like, I can't wait. I can't hold on to that anymore. The best news that I've got is to tell you that that's not the way it is. You're not without hope. There is tremendous hope, and it all centers on Jesus. That's why he says Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What that tells us is that we have every reason to hope. And in fact, we can have complete confidence knowing that because of Christ's sacrifice, we can be pardoned from our sin and receive eternal life. And furthermore, here's, it, this is even where it gets really good for all of us in this room too. We come to realize that Christ's resurrection signifies the resurrection of all others who have died in the Lord, having placed their faith in him. This is what it means when, when, when Paul uses the word first fruits. Now listen, when, when the word first fruits is used, it's, it often is used in, in, in to, to talk about the best of the produce of the harvest, the first and the best. But it, it also serves to tell us that that is the representative of all the other fruit that's going to come behind it. It is the first of much more to come. Now think with me along the lines for just a moment because that's exactly what we see is happening with us spiritually. 
Paul goes on to say, look, all of us are on a death march. We're on a death march because Adam, our first parent, sinned. And because of his sin, we've all plunged into that same train with him and we're all bound for hell because we're all sinners. You realize that's the train that Adam leads us on. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5. It's what he also talks about here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul, is that Adam, because of his sin, leads the rest of us on that train to, to, to hell. Christ has come to intercept that. And he has come to die in our place for our sins vicariously for us on our behalf as our substitute. And he was buried in a grave, but the grave could not hold him. So when he burst forth, he is the first fruit and he is the one who's leading the charge and leading the train of all who will place their faith in him. And he reverses the curse. And now instead of heading toward hell, he leads all of us toward heaven because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And you and I know that that's not just true for us, but it's true for all of our loved ones who have died in the Lord before us. And I want you to know Paul puts the exclamation point on that. Because then he says, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when that train gets to the end of time as God has foreordained for it to be, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, then Jesus' triumph will be complete And our passage that I read for you this morning concludes by saying Christ must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Brothers and sisters, that's why it's good news. It's good news because it completely countermands the bad news. It takes death and it just squashes it. That's a good word. That's a North Hall word. Write that down. It squashes it. It defeats it. It defangs it. And that's why Paul can finish this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, this way. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The strength of death is sin, and the the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Sin is destroyed, death is defeated, and our victory is secured by the death and the resurrection of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that that gives us every reason we need to celebrate today. That gives us every reason we need to greet our brothers and our sisters by saying, He is risen, He is risen indeed. It is because our hope rests in that gospel truth. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever seriously considered how important that gospel message truly is? No doubt you've heard of the crucifixion of Jesus. No doubt you've heard that he raised from the dead. I'm not asking you if you are familiar with the Easter story. I'm asking you, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and actually rose from the grave bodily? Have you considered the implications of that belief? Have you you gone beyond a sheer profession of, yeah, that's the story, I know it, to allowing it to be that which actually changes the orientation of your life? 
If not, then I encourage you to settle that issue today in your own heart. The entire Christian faith rests on the fact that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead by the power of God. Your only hope rests upon your trust in that truth. Do you believe it? Does this truth control the trajectory of your life? Listen, if Jesus died and if he rose again, as the scriptures declare, then you should pay attention to what he says. You should do what he commands you to do. You should acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner on a death march toward a literal hell. And you should bow before the one who came to give his life for you so that you could be pardoned from your sins. You should place your faith in him and repent of your sin and make Jesus Christ your Lord. And the Bible says that all who will do that, he will forgive of their sins and give them eternal life. Will you do that today? I honestly cannot think of a better day to do that than Easter Sunday morning. The day that we gather together to celebrate the very truth of which we have been discussing this morning. Ask him to save you from your sins and to give you everlasting life. Maybe you're here and you say, well, I've done that. I've done that. I've, I've given my heart to the Lord. Maybe your testimony is this morning perhaps that you are a believer, but if you're honest, if you're honest with yourself and you're honest before the Lord, you'd have to say, I'm not following him like I should. I'm not truly He's my Savior, but if I'm honest, he's not really my Lord this morning. I'm directing my own path, and I'm doing my own thing. Well, if that's the case, if you're, if you're living in disobedience to the Lord, maybe you would even go so far as to say, I'm just not living boldly for the Lord. I'm not, I'm not trusting him to be the power that allows me to live out my life in the way that it should be lived. If that's the case, then I want you to know an honest consideration of the resurrection should cause you to stop dabbling in your faith as if it were some hobby. Listen, Jesus never intended to be a sideline interest for you. Rather, your faith and your commitment to him should be the passion of your life, and it ought to be the passion of the life of your family. Jesus Christ should be given the priority in everything in your life. Why? Because his death and resurrection is your only hope for victory. And again, I would just say to you, I cannot think of a better day than Easter Sunday morning to rededicate your life to following Christ. He is your victorious hope, and you should make that commitment today. I began today by telling you about that path, that road and that path, and through that cemetery and that church that stood there and my dad pastored in. And um, As I reflected upon that this week, I was reminded of what it must have taken for my dad to walk past the graves of his mom and his dad every single Sunday, week after week, to stand in that pulpit to preach. And I thought, 
wow, how did, how did he do that? How did he find the, the strength to do that every week? I'm not sure that I would strong, be strong enough to do that. And all I can tell you is, is that he was gripped. I firmly believe this with all my heart, that my father was gripped with the truth of what this scripture teaches, that Christ died vicariously for him and was raised victoriously for him, that he might have victorious hope. And so, a little over 15 months ago, my whole family was gathered around that same little path again. And it was all of us who were there this time. And we were standing right next to those two graves. There was Clarence and Amanda Dale. And then just to the right was some freshly dug dirt. And there in a casket lay the body of my father. And about 25 yards back behind that, right next to that same path, was the tomb of Charles Richard Dale my brother, who had made his way to that same cemetery some 14 years ago. And my family stood there next to those graves and one, one that was open, ready to receive the next casket. And I couldn't help but think to some degree, maybe the baton was being passed. And I want you to know, that's when the real gravity of what my dad went through for 12 years really rested upon me. It's what I sense this morning. Because I want you to know, I've got no other message to preach to you. In the face of death, in the face of brokenheartedness, in the face of feeling as if you can't go on any further, in the face of everything negative and every bad news that you can have, I deliver to you that which I first received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I have no other hope except in that. And I want you to know this morning that is your only hope as well. This is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the good news of the gospel that reaches down deep to us in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our pain, and announces to us that we have victorious hope because of the vicarious death and the verifiable resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this wonderful good news that we can celebrate together today. Now, my prayer this morning, Lord, is that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction to those who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, who are living their lives according to their own rules and according to their own way. May they recognize that their only hope lies in you. Help them to commit themselves to you, to confess their sins and to fall humbly before you and trust in you to be their Savior. There are those in this room, Lord, who I have no doubt are not following you as they should. It's my prayer today that as they truly think along the resurrection and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that it would change the trajectory of their lives.
Let them come to follow you as they ought. These are my prayers, and I pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.